You heard Gary pray about the counseling conference. Thank you for those of you who were praying and those of you who were able to attend. We've been asking the Lord that he would allow us uh, to use biblical counseling as a means to teach people that the Bible is sufficient for life's problems. And the Lord allowed us that additional opportunity. Dave and Teresa opened the conference, and after their first uh, session, somebody came up to them and said, you know, if the conference ended right now, it would have been worth it all. So we just praise the Lord uh, for what he's done. Also, you heard him pray for Lisa and Adam. That's surgery's Wednesday, so continue to pray for that. And uh, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we are blessed to live at the time that we do and that we can look back and see the fullness of the gospel. We can see your plan of salvation for your people. And so, Lord, as we go to the text, may you humble our hearts. May we see more of Christ. May he be lifted high in our hearts so that we might live and speak and think unto your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Luke chapter 9 this morning. We're going to walk through verses 18 through 22. After my freshman year of Bible college, a lot of my friends got to go home during the summer and they had the opportunity to preach in their home churches. And I remember thinking, why did I not get the chance to preach in my home church? And I subsequently learned that this is the reason, because my pastor was smart and I shouldn't have been preaching yet. When I finally got the chance, I actually took this narrative as my text, and I had visions of me preaching before the church and my voice ringing out, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so I go into the pulpit to preach, and I realize that my notes are totally out of sort. We were taught to write our sermon notes on half a page, and then you would then kind of put your notes in order, but when I printed my notes... I cut them in half, and I just put one stack behind the other. And so I had all my odd page notes in the front and all my even page notes in the back. I was given 15 minutes on a Sunday night. I probably went seven, and I think three of them were spent me looking through my notes. Well, this morning we're looking at the fundamental question from Jesus, who do you say that I am? And this has been the question that has been running through the book of Luke, even from the introduction. Luke is writing so that Theophilus may be sure that he may have confidence in the things that he has learned, specifically the things that he has learned of Christ. In chapter 4, Jesus is in the synagogue, and the crowd is marveling and asking, how is he teaching these gracious words? Isn't he just Joseph's Son, in chapter 8, the disciples ask, who is this that even the, the seas and the winds obey his voice? In chapter 9, Herod asked, who is this about whom I hear such things? And in our text this morning, it's Jesus himself that is asking the question, asking that fundamental question, who do you say that I am? Look there in verses 18 through 20. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. 
And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Luke doesn't record for us where Jesus and the disciples have gone at this point. Matthew tells us that they're in a completely different city that was north of Bethsaida where Jesus had done this miracle of feeding the 5,000. It seems they finally found their seclusion from the crowd and we find Jesus there praying alone. His disciples are present. Jesus is praying. The crowds are not there. And what Luke has done throughout the gospel, if we've been paying close enough attention, is that he highlights that before these significant moments in the life and ministry of Christ, we find him praying. Jesus is praying at his baptism. He is praying before he faces the opposition of the Jewish leaders. He is praying before he selects the 12 disciples and comes down off the mountain. He's praying at the Mount of Transfiguration. He prays before he teaches his disciples how to pray. He prays for Simon when Simon is going to be sifted like wheat by Satan. And he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. So we see that Jesus is found praying before these significant moments or even transitions in ministry. So we ask, what what is significant about this moment? Well, I think we can assume that Jesus is praying for the disciples because he's going to engage them in this conversation about who he actually is. And so he finishes praying and he turns to uh, the disciples there. And at the end of verse 18, he asks, who do the crowds say that I am? Remember, the crowd is that group that's that's sort of in between the religious leaders who have rejected Jesus and the disciples. They respect Jesus. They tend to follow him from one place to another, but they don't understand who he is fully. Not even the disciples understand who he is fully. And they don't accept who he is. And the answer is, sorry, i got to kill this spider right here. Do you guys see that? <laughs> I'm like, I'm not making eye contact with you. I'm looking at the spider, though. <laughs> I don't like spiders. That, um, the, the, the answers of the crowd might surprise us. If we hadn't heard Herod earlier in the chapter sort of discussing what, what is he hearing? What are the rumors that the crowd have? Well, some say John the Baptist. When we walk through that text where Herod is thinking about who Jesus is, we said, we're going to save some of this content for when we get to Jesus' question. So here we are. Some say John the Baptist. Herod had killed John in order to appease his wife, and the rumor among the crowd was maybe that Jesus is John the Baptist come back from the dead. Now, wouldn't, if you're like a Dateline NBC investigative journalist, it would not have taken long to figure out the truth behind this one, that Jesus cannot be John the Baptist. John was the forerunner of Christ. John came preaching the message of repentance to Israel to prepare the way for Christ. John and Jesus cannot be the same person because they've been seen in the same room at the same time. John baptized Jesus. But... Herod seemed a little worried that that 
maybe John the Baptist has come back to haunt me for killing him. That's one opinion of the crowd. Maybe it's John the Baptist. Others thought that maybe Jesus was the prophet Elijah. Elijah was a powerful preacher. He powerfully called the nation of Israel to repentance. And at the end of Malachi, or a couple times in Malachi, we saw that one would come in the spirit of Elijah. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. We learned that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He preached the message of repentance to Israel in preparing the way for the Messiah to come. This is how Jesus describes John. He says, but I tell you that Elijah has already come. He's already come. He's come preaching the message of repentance. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then verse 13 says, well, you say, how do you know He's not just talking about the Elijah. Well, verse 13 says, Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist has come in the spirit of Elijah. Jesus is not Elijah. Others are more vague in that maybe Jesus is one of the prophets of old. This was the opinion offered earlier in Luke chapter 7. The crowd says, A great prophet has arisen among us. Some may have believed in actual reincarnation. Maybe this is actually Elijah. Maybe this is actually Moses. But um, this is the way that, that Malachi spoke of Moses. That Malachi said, Elijah's coming again. And Jesus says, well, that was John the Baptist. Others may have that sense of it. Not that Jesus is literally Moses come back from the dead, but he is a great prophet like Moses. Maybe Jesus is... Jeremiah, he, he, he could be just one of these prophets. Jeremiah called Israel to repentance through tears, and, and Jesus is found weeping over the crowd at times, and he will be found weeping over Jerusalem. Maybe he is Jeremiah. Maybe he's Moses. We saw last week that Jesus is able to produce bread from, from just a few pieces of bread, feed 5,000 people. We saw in Deuteronomy that there was a promise that a prophet like Moses would arise. Maybe he's Moses. What is missing from the crowds is, is the clear idea of who Jesus is. They're, they're heaping some pretty high praise on Jesus, but it's not high enough. It's high praise, but it's not high enough. So Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks them this all-important question, Who do you say that I am? The you there is plural. We joke that it, it could be translated y'all. Okay, uh, you know, Jesus is saying, okay, I understand what the crowd is saying, but who do you guys say that I am? And the you there, it's emphatic. I hear that. What do you say? What are you saying about who I am? So again, seemingly, everybody's been sort of asking this question, and now it's Jesus' turn to ask the question. The fact that Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks them emphatically what they think implies obviously that the crowd is wrong and it reminds us that the popular opinion about Jesus does not determine then his identity or his mission. As in Jesus' day, 
There are many popular ideas and theories and opinions of who Christ is. But there's only one that jives with the truth of God's Word. is that Christ is the Messiah. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, there is one Lord and one faith. Our job as a church is to strive together to be unified under the faith that has been passed down to us from the apostles in the form of Scripture. One of the most significant aspects then of this faith, of this doctrine, is the doctrine concerning Christ. And we are called as a church to be faithful to this and to pass this down from generation to generation. In fact, it's in fellowship together as a church, as the body of Christ, that we actually learn more and more consistent with Scripture who Christ is and what He has accomplished on our behalf. There is one Lord and one faith, and we are growing up together to mature manhood, to the fullness of the stature of Christ. So Peter answers. And when Peter answers, his answer is consistent with his, his character, first of all. He's, he's often found the first to speak. Sometimes it, it's a weakness for Peter. This time he does well. But Peter also answers as sort of a spokesman. For the disciples. This question is asked to the disciples. So when Peter answers, he's answering on behalf of the disciples. And this time, he isn't speaking out of haste or folly. He's speaking truth that has been revealed to him from above. Peter gives the right answer, the correct answer. But I don't think, as we'll see here in a little bit, that means that the disciples fully understand everything about Jesus or everything that he is. That's why I prayed earlier that we are so blessed to live in a time where we have the completed New Testament where somebody like the Apostle Paul says, let me tell you really clearly about Christ and who he is and what this means. So I don't know that they fully understand everything, but he does see that Jesus is the Christ of God. Peter powerfully confesses in in, in a spokesman role for his other disciples, that Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. He's more powerful and authoritative than Elijah. He is more than just one of the prophets. He is the promised one of God. Peter's answer stands in stark contrast to the answer of the crowd. They weren't going far enough. Peter's answer stands in contrast. They were giving respectful titles Peter gives the title. Christ is the most common title given to Jesus. It is his supreme designation. Christ means Messiah. It comes from the word meaning anointed one. It is to confer upon someone a particular office. In the Old Testament, we see examples of prophets who are anointed. They're conferred this office of prophet. We see priests of Israel that are anointed to be priests. And we see kings that are anointed to rule and to reign. So I think, broadly speaking, we're going to get to what Luke, I think, sort of emphasizes on. But broadly speaking, the title Christ, if you want to think about it theologically, refers to Jesus' position as the prophet, the priest, and the king. We saw in... In our last paragraph there, 
that Jesus demonstrated that he's greater than Moses and he's greater than Elisha. Elisha fed a hundred men. Jesus feeds 5,000 men. Likely even more people are gathered there. He's greater than the prophets of old. He is the one, we said from Psalm 78, who can spread a table in the wilderness and feed the multitude miraculously. He's greater than the prophets. He is the prophet of prophets. He reveals God in the flesh. Jesus is also the great high priest. Unlike the priests of Israel who continually offered sacrifices in the temple, Jesus has offered this sacrifice once and for all. Amazingly, and by God's grace, Jesus is both the priest and he's the sacrifice. He presents himself as the only sufficient sacrifice for sin that we might be forgiven and purified from our sin. He then sympathizes with us as our sympathetic high priest in our weakness. And he's purifying us in our desires. Jesus is prophet, he's priest, and he's king. And this is where Luke tends to emphasize who Jesus is. He is king, who was the promised one in the Old Testament. We've seen, even from the birth narrative, and we'll we'll walk through this, that Jesus is the promised king that will rule on the throne of David forever. In Psalm 2, the nations are raging against the Lord's anointed one, the Messiah. This anointed one will be king in Zion, Psalm 2 says, and all will submit to him. The nations are then warned to turn to this king and to pay him homage and to to submit to him, turn to him, find refuge in him before the wrath of this king falls. Turn to the anointed one. Israel then was anticipating this king, this Psalm 2 king, this Isaiah 9 king. There's a, a, a ruler that's coming. The government will be on his shoulders. They were looking forward to this king, and and, and so Luke has been developing the case very skillfully under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that this is who Jesus is. In chapter 1, the angel told Mary that she will conceive and she will bear a son, and, and the angel said, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. This is Christ. He will get the throne of David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is the Christ. He's the promised coming king. In chapter 2, the angels announce to the shepherds, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the Lord. Simeon had been told by the Holy Spirit that he would not taste death until he sees the Christ. The genealogy of chapter 3 traced Jesus' line through David to to remind us that he is the coming king who will rule on the throne of David. Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit in in chapter 3. And God the Father speaks from heaven, this is my son. The son of Psalm 2, with whom I am well pleased. In chapter 4, Jesus takes the scroll from Isaiah, and he reads this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
In chapter 4, verse 41, Jesus casts out the demons and silenced them because they knew he was the Christ. Luke has been developing this. In chapters 5 through 8, then the king is demonstrating what's true of his kingdom. Evil flees, flees. There is no sickness or death. He's demonstrating his authority and identity over and over and over again through his miraculous works, through his deliverance, and through his brilliant instruction. In chapter 7, when John the Baptist had his doubts about whether Jesus was truly the one who is to come, Jesus says, go back to him and tell him what you've seen. The blind are receiving sight. The deaf are healed, the lame are healed, lepers are healed, the dead are being raised, and the gospel's being proclaimed. Go tell him that. That's all the evidence he needs to see. So in many ways, Luke has been building to this point. When Christ confess, or when Peter confesses Jesus as Christ, now there's a, there's a shift here in, in the narrative of Luke where Jesus begins to talk about, now that you are beginning to understand who I am, now you'll see that I must suffer and die. Notice before we move into that next section there that this claim of Peter that's true about Christ is an exclusive claim. We said earlier about rumors of Jesus and different ideas about Jesus, and one that's popular today is just to say, that well, it's kind of up to me to decide who I think Jesus is. But Jesus makes an exclusive claim here of himself. Jesus is not whoever I want him to be any more than I can make you whoever I want you to be. He is the promised one of old. He is the coming Savior, the coming King, and He has arrived on the scene, and the disciples, for the first time, are beginning to have eyes that see this has been revealed to Peter from heaven. So all of Luke has been building to this confession. The King has come. Look at the nature of the kingdom. The one who will rule on the throne of David, he is here. And we just saw that of his rule, there will be no end. The government will be upon his shoulders. His name shall be Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's here. The King is here. He's going to rule forever. And that's why the disciples struggle to understand the next section. And he strictly commanded them there in verse 21 to tell this to no one saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. The king is here, the king who will rule on the throne of David forever. And then he says, don't talk about it. And by the way, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to die. But I will be raised. The prophet like Moses, the prophet greater than Moses, the one who can provide the meal in the wilderness, the great high priest who intercedes for us, the king of kings, he will conquer, he will rule, but the path to that goes through the cross, through his death and resurrection. First, though, we notice there in verse 21 that Jesus commands their silence. This is one of several instances where Jesus commands silence. He strictly charges them, the ESV says. That, that word is sometimes translated rebuke. 
It's a strong warning that they are not to reveal what's been revealed to them to others. Why is that? Well, one, it's a, it's a judgment on those who have rejected Christ to this point. But also, there's a practical sense the crowds are not ready. The undecided crowd, they are not ready to properly respond to Jesus. We, we sort of peeked over to John 6 last week, and we saw that the crowd is ready to make Jesus a political ruler over them. They are tired of being under the oppression of Israel. They want a political king that will, or Israel, Rome. They want a political ruler that will overthrow the tyranny and oppression of Rome. They love the miracles of Jesus, and they long to be out from underneath Roman occupation. So they go and they say, let's make Jesus our king. But that's not what, how Jesus will be made king. John 6, 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So when Jesus charges the disciples here to not speak of what has been revealed to them, when he charges them with silence, he's not trying to avoid the cross. He's ensuring that he makes it to the cross. He's ensuring that he avoids the crowd seeking to put him up as king, elevating him to a place of kingship the way, the way Satan tempted Jesus and said, look, here, here, you can have all these kingdoms. You don't have to take the path of suffering. You don't have to take the path of the cross. Just fall down and worship me. So then we see in verse 22 the necessity of suffering, rejection, death, and vindication. Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited one, and now Jesus immediately instructs him that he must die. And Luke, following this confession, this sort of becomes the theme. Jesus is more comfortable now telling his disciples about his mission. I must now go suffer and die. He refers to himself there as the Son of Man. You may, you may be aware of this, uh, you likely are, but Son of Man does not refer primarily to Jesus' humanity. That would make for good preaching, right? He's the Son of God, He's God in the flesh, and He's the Son of Man. He's, he's man, that would make for great preaching. You could say He's the Son of God, He's the Son of Adam. That would be a, a better way to say it, because the title Son of Man does not refer primarily to Jesus' humanity, but it's alluding back to Daniel chapter 7, where one like a son of man is given dominion and authority, and he will rule, he will have glory, he will have a kingdom, all peoples, nations, and languages will, will serve this one who is a son of man. The title, son of man, points to Jesus as Lord and the judge of all people. So he refers to himself. He takes this title for himself. So if the charge to silence confounded the disciples, you just sent us out to preach the kingdom. Now we know you're the Christ. Why would we not go? If that confounded the disciples, the prediction of his suffering and death must have floored them. He takes upon himself the Son of Man designation and he speaks of death and suffering. You know, I was trying to capture earlier 
how odd this would sound to an Israelite. How odd this would sound to the disciples. It's hard for us to even get there in our minds because we know how the story ends and we know the New Testament and it's informed us and it's taught us and it's pointed us to all this truth concerning Christ. But imagine the first time you're hearing this, I must suffer, I must be rejected, I must die, and I must be raised. In fact, not in Luke, but another gospel, Peter tries to get in the way and says, you're not going to suffer. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are like Satan. You are tempting me to avoid the cross without suffering. The Son of Man must suffer. So Jesus summarizes his mission there with four phrases. The Son of Man must suffer. You might ask, how did, how did they miss Isaiah 53? The common understanding of a passage like Isaiah 53 was that Israel was the sufferer and that the Messiah would come and deliver them from their wounds and from their transgressions. They didn't view the Messiah as the one who would die, who would be cut off from the land of the living, who would then return to life. They missed that the Son of Man must suffer that the suffering servant in Isaiah is the Messiah. He must be rejected. The rulers of Israel will reject Jesus as the Messiah. We've already seen the beginnings of this, where the Pharisees and those like them have decided in their heart that they must be rid of Jesus. When they try to discredit Jesus and it fails and he owns all of them with his wisdom and his knowledge and his ability to answer their questions that they thought would entrap Jesus, when that fails, they will then decide to kill Jesus. They will accuse him of blasphemy and seek the death penalty for him. The rulers of Israel here are, are representative of the nation of Israel who by and large reject the Messiah, the Savior. And in light of this rejection, the gospel goes to the nations. It goes to the whole world. This is part of the mystery of the gospel. That by the rejection of the Israelites, that the gospel comes to the nations. The preaching of the gospel goes worldwide. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. Now we see more clearly, and the disciples ought to have seen more clearly the necessity of the incarnation. If Jesus' mission is truly to suffer, to be rejected, and to die, it demands the incarnation. It demands that he have a real physical body, that he might take in himself the penalty, the wrath of God in his body. He has taken on flesh in order to suffer, in order to die. But he must be resurrected. The Father will vindicate the work of the Son in raising him from the dead. The penalty of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. So if Christ remains in the grave, then he remains under the authority and he remains under the penalty of sin. If Jesus remains in the grave, then he fought with sin and sin won. But he rose from the grave. He didn't lose to sin. He's resurrected in victory over sin and death. 
The Son of Man is not just given a kingdom the way Satan said you can have these kingdoms. He has come and he has won through his death and resurrection a people for himself. So we should consider then for a moment what it took for Jesus to accomplish our salvation. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He must die and he must rise again. Sin is so egregious, sin is so uh, pervasive, sin is so defiling, sin is so worthy of condemnation that it took the death and resurrection of Jesus to conquer it on behalf of his people. I wonder if we tend to think about our sin that way, that it took the death of Christ on our behalf to free us from its penalty and from its power. And one day when we are with Christ, its very presence. Or I wonder if we dismiss our sins. I wonder if we excuse our sins or minimize our sins. It's my circumstances. It's the people around me. It's this or that. I think we would do well this morning to remind ourselves that Jesus didn't come and die for that which is excusable, that which is minimal, that which is dismissible. He came to die for the very sins that put us at enmity with God, that enslaved us by its power, dominated us, and ultimately condemned us to hell and eternal wrath. Consider also for a moment not only what it took, but the fact that Jesus was willing to go through this to accomplish your salvation. I'm reminded of Paul's words in Romans chapter 5, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then third, consider that in light of this redemption, in light of your salvation, for those who have turned from their sin and trusted in Christ, He forgives you of those sins that have put you at enmity with God. He unites you with Christ so that you are adopted into His family. In light of this great redemption, through the death and resurrection of Jesus that accomplishes the forgiveness of sins, we are a people for God's own possession who ought to be zealous for good works. We have to be zealous for good works. Maybe it would be helpful for you this week if you would write out, maybe in the morning, maybe tomorrow morning, write out, here's three ways that I please God. Here's three ways that I don't please God. And it'd be interesting to ask yourself, which one do I see more clearly? Do I see my sin more clearly? Do those three just come right off the top? Or do I see all the ways that I do really good more clearly? Which one do you struggle with more? And that might inform how you respond. If you just are so aware of your sin and you're so broken by your sin, you meditate on the gospel of Christ and the fact that you've been justified, forgiven, united with Christ. If you see all the ways that you do well, you too might consider Christ and see that there's all this list over here that Christ paid for, for your son. And then you can pick one of these three ways that, that, that you, you're struggling to please God in this area. And you might ask 
some questions of that. What is this sin's opposite? What do I need to put on? What verses can I study and commit to memory that address this particular area? Who can I enlist to be praying for me and talking with? What do I need to change in order to make no provision for the flesh? Consider then forth, in light of the suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection of Christ, we rejoice in our salvation, we seek to honor Him in our lives, and we gladly announce the Savior to the world. You see, the command to remain silent was temporary. That was to the disciples, not to tell the crowd, until after the resurrection. You see, following the resurrection, Jesus revealed Himself, and He revealed the rest of the story. We said earlier that at this point the disciples don't understand everything they need to know. And the reason we say that is how the gospel ends. In Luke 24, beginning in verse 44, it says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He opened their minds and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name among all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So once He opened their minds following the resurrection, now it's time. The, the, the command to be silent is over. It's time to go proclaim the name of Christ to the nations. So as we think about observing the Lord's Supper this morning that we're going to do in just a couple minutes, I hope that we will do those two things, that we will consider all that Christ accomplished for us, consider Christ, and Paul says over in 1 Corinthians that when we take the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming Christ. So we consider and we proclaim. Let's pray together. We're going to sing another song. And then we'll observe the Lord's Supper together. Lord, we praise you for your wisdom in the way you planned salvation. In a million years, we never would have come up with it. Yet we see your glory on display through it. May we be grateful and may we be zealous for good works in light of it. In Jesus' name. Amen.